Welcome to HSDF the Podcast, a collection of policy discussions on government technology and homeland security brought to you by the Homeland Security and Defense Forum. In this second of a two-part series, learn how artificial intelligence and particularly generative AI is sparking numerous discussions about the use of AI to support the DHS mission and what industry is doing to support the AI transformation taking place at the Department of Homeland Security. Featuring Reggie Brothers, former DHS Undersecretary for ST, John Molella from the CBP Invent Team, Amy Henninger at DHS's ST Directorate, Wale Moses from Microsoft, and Henry J. Powell at GDIT. This discussion took place at the annual HSDF Border Security Symposium in Washington, D.C. on December 12, 2023. John, going back to you. So about data. So we all know that AI doesn't work without data, right? Data is fundamental to it. So I know when I was in, in DHS, it was an issue of trying to um, get folks to collaborate, to share data. Can you give us some sense of how that's working now and what some of the efforts are there? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I look at this. One, one of the benefits of being one of the old guys is um, I know what things used to look like. So, uh, you know, starting with, with U.S. Customs Service back in the day, uh, I, I remember looking at, you know, immigration databases and I had no idea what I was looking at. And even when I finally got access to these immigration databases, I didn't have the, the domain expertise to be able to, to utilize that. So so I think it's I think it's twofold. Um, we have come a long way. Uh, we certainly have. You know, if you look at our National Targeting Center, for instance, we have the the entire gamut of DHS there, you know, sharing information as well as non-DHS entities uh, that are that are also present, um, we have come a long way. Uh, and I think um, we are looking for, for AI, though, you know, ultimately to, to help to overcome those seams that are naturally uh, in, in data. And I think I was mentioning one of the earlier ones that, you know, the, the hope is that as we apply these tools, it doesn't matter what format the data is in, whether it's structured or unstructured, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be able to utilize it uh, in a more holistic way. And we are moving toward that. Um, it, it, it's impossible, I think, to, to uh, really, it's impossible to overemphasize the, the whole priority of, of trust and relationships, honestly. And I think that really, you can build structure, but we also know that these things work on trust. Different offices and agencies need to trust each other. That as they share the data, the data will be used uh, in the in the appropriate manner. So the guidance and the oversight is there, and I think when you marry that up with the uh, with the with the trust relationships of the individual um, entities, then I think you have a you have a powerful tool. Jake, we had a good conversation about this a few minutes ago. Could you talk to where you see the technology is to enable this kind of sharing? So the. <clears throat> the use of technology to enable this is going to come from multiple facets, and and the determination of what you use and how you use it, anything from on-premise data center, uh, restrictive and self-contained clouds, hosting things in Microsoft, you have the uh, computing at the edge, and then you have to compute at the tactical edge. Um, and, and to use that technology, you have to make it so that the end consumer, in this case, the end consumer very well could be the agent in the field with uh, a tablet or an iPhone, um, needs to be able to be able to utilize that technology without too much hindrance, so the iPhone experience, as, as my boss used to teach me. But then there's pieces that are 
in between those that make those work, right? So we've talked before on, on panels before us to talk about what happens when you're disadvantaged or disconnected, right? And, and how much can you have when you're in that backup mode? I think the previous panel to this talked about that. And so knowing well, what is on my tablet versus what maybe is in my car, right? Versus what's at a local substation versus what's at home base and making that work. So communications is obviously there. Compute power obviously has to be there. Um, there's, there's discussions of where we can do that. The scaling of using that technology and we've all learned that maintaining huge on-premise physical data centers is not the answer, right? Using our Microsoft partner is usually one of the fastest ways to get there and keep you out of trouble, right, uh, and going forward. But the, but the technology also has to have some controls that keep things in place. And so Anne talked about this in, in hers, but we have to ensure that as we turn this on and we use the technologies that are available to us, we have to keep our eye on what's next in technology, right? So there's things coming out like quantum. That's a big thing for us, right? What you can do with quantum and what you can do with those half states. There's also, you know, what is wearable computing going to look like? And, and you know, with every time the iPhone comes out in another generation, the chip doubles in speed, right? So who knows what you can do with that in the future? But also the technology that makes AI work is it has to work on the data it was given. That is either coming from sensor feeds, from a UAV that's loitering, right, as Ann talked about, or it's a sensor tower that's got radar and cameras in it, or it's got records from a subject in investigation. And so the technologies that feed AI are just as important as the AI itself, because without the underlying stuff with it, AI has nothing to work on. Thanks, sir. Amy, um, so this is a border security kind of conference, right? But data can be used in other kinds of applications as well. S&T looks across the enterprise. What are some other applications that you see for this? Yeah, so to um, sort of echo what we've heard so far, you know, data sharing is always hard, right? I've been in the DOD, I've been in the IC, now I'm at DHS. Data sharing is always hard. Uh, but we are getting better at it, right? We, we are. And I think AI will help sort of, you know, be an impetus towards moving that uh, further along more quickly. Uh, you know, one of the things we're very interested in exploring is the whole idea of foundation models, right, or transformer architectures. Um, and we see a lot of, I, I like to see your head going north and south things. So and we see a lot of goodness, you know, the government, uh, uh, you know, TSA, you get five and a half million uh, images a day of luggage scans, right? So, um, you know, we see applications like, uh, you know, image-based uh, foundation models, uh, not just across DHS, but across the government, right? So think of, you know, uh, uh, trucks coming across the border, you know, cargo at ports, uh, luggage at TSA. But, oh, by the way, then you have all the packages at the post office, right? So you can really sort of come up with this massive data set uh, to characterize stream of commerce data uh, and basically come up with a, a model that would treat imagery much like chat GP treats language, right? Uh, and sort of understand all the intricacies uh, uh, of looking for um, um, contraband uh, in, a, in a broad way where you have a foundational model that really understands that data uh, and, can, and can separate out the idea of what's the scanning technology, you know, from the imagery and sort of uh, normalize across all that. So those are some of the applications we're very interested in looking at. Yeah, so, so Amy, I had a comment. So this is, uh, you hit on one of the areas for me, which is the, one of the most exciting recent developments in 
uh, large language models, which is you're touching on multimodal yeah. uh, generative AI. And so that is, so we, so we have that available not to be a, not to sound like a commercial. Uh, so yeah, that's, it's, it's super exciting. So the ability to, in the first iteration of large language models, we, we use text to communicate it with it. You can now use images in video uh, as a as an input, yes. and then the the large language model can interpret what it's seeing and tell you and tell you what it's seeing in amazing levels of detail. And so, some of the use cases that you just called out, I think, would be perfect uh, example use cases for multimodal generative AI. Terry, can you add add your thoughts on multiple types of AI for different applications? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. I'm oh, sorry. Could you add your comments on mul- multiple types of AIs as you're trying to uh, perform a mission? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, it's it's easy to get uh, an understanding that when you people talk about language models, it can be applied broadly. And as you train those models, those models start falling into categories. Now, there are some models that are very expansive that could that could input anything from video interpretation to text to audio, and those models are large, and, um, and and when you work with those, but sometimes you wind up, wind up, excuse me, sometimes you wind up with more than one model at a time, and sometimes some smaller models working together, where you have a predictive model associated with uh, movement in the field, working with a different model that's dealing with full motion video and size or 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 scanning of a, of a package, and then you have another model that's dealing with case study reports. And c- call them whatever you like, some of them are predictive. Some of these models are built into the hardware of some of the technologies that we're using. Some of these models are loaded onto high-performance computing. Letting these models work together is sometimes part of the answer, but you can't impose that on the user. The user has got to have an interface and sometimes you have to use middleware on top of that interface. And I think I was talking, we were talking earlier about this where, you know, there's a presentation layer that then leads to what's behind, what's behind the curtain. Because quite frankly, most of the users don't need to see all of that. They're not all data scientists. That's, that's an assumption we can't make. So using the multi-model approach that deals with multi-modal data um, is how it's actually handled when you deal with large data sets of disparate data where they're not characterized. Until you, until we get to a scenario where data is all properly labeled and encoded, call it zero trust with labels on it, whatever you want to call it, you run to a problem with not only sharing, but different models don't know what they should be touching or how they should present that. And not every user can access every model with the same access level. So we have those problems as well. well thanks, John. Um, John, one, one question here. Um, what, sorry for that. One question here on workforce. So this is relatively new technology. What, what are you concerned about your work your workforce? So, yeah, I think you know as as we said already, you know, the implementing of something new uh, is, is going to take training. You know, in order to the tool is really just going to be as good as as the user. Uh, you know, who's who's actually implementing it, and and as as Jay said, you know, the what's going on in the back end that has to be, you know, it has to be seamless for the for the officer or the agent that's actually using this. Um, you know, there is a certain training element, you know, the officer or the agent has to have confidence in the tool that they're using. Um, also, I think internally communicating to the workforce that these tools are not meant to replace them. And I think that was also said earlier today, you know, there is no substitute for, for a human in the loop. That's, uh, you know, that's another theme for the day, but I think that's something that has to be communicated to the workforce that any AI tool or machine learning tool that we, we implement is for the enhancement 
of the officer or the agent. Uh, it's not to replace them. And I think that's a key point to communicate. And, and back to you, John, is another question for you, John, is on privacy. And, and what, what are your concerns about privacy with this, with this technology? Yeah, so I, I obviously, you know, and I'm looking at this also from the, you know, the, the public perception, you know, that there have been, you know, apocalyptic predictions about, you know, what happens when we implement these tools and, you know, you know, will it, will it be the end of civilization as we know it? I mean, some of the, some of the predictions have been, uh, you know, pretty, pretty dark. Um, you know, obviously with, with the, whenever you touch data, there are concerns with privacy, uh, and, and with security. So those are, those are real concerns. Um, the guidelines are, are in place, you know, with the, with the AI task force, uh, and really cascading down from the executive order from the White House, you know, as as the department and as uh, the components implement that guidance, you know, it will build on pre-existing privacy guidance that's out there. Um, and you could see that uh, the component, also the department's uh, intent to be as transparent as possible. You know, we, we now have an inventory that's available for, you know, public display uh, on the DHS website that actually lists out all of the different AI efforts by all the different components. So I think when you look at that level of transparency, it should give it should give the public some some confidence. As far as security, J- Jay was touching on this, but obviously, you know, we're going very slowly and cautiously as we we look to implement uh, you know any of these models. And what that means for us is just making sure that every single security uh, guideline is going to be followed before we actually implement this on our data. Thanks. So the last topic, as we are almost at that, that golden time, um, and this is really to, to Amy, to Wale, and to Jay. This has to do with adversarial AI. So this is the question of whether it is model poisoning, data poisoning, um, deep fakes, um, what have you. What are your thoughts on the dangers and how do we mitigate for those? And whoever wants to pick up on that. Yeah, I'll, I'll start. So the, the, when dealing with red AI, right, the challenge of someone uh, having an adverse effect to the data you're trying to, to deal with, you, you first have to understand the data stream of that particular data. If you're dealing with a concise data stream where you have a camera collecting data that goes to an image that's evaluated by an AI, other than someone doing something silly in front of the camera like wearing a face mask so that you can't do facial recognition or they wear something over themselves to make them look like a camel as opposed to a person walking, right? And we've seen all of that. Um, that's not red AI. That's just trying to mess with the sensor. But if you start dealing with open source models or you're dealing with data from known good sources and you accidentally mess up your model or you're collecting from open source models or data from uh, sources that you don't trust, you could rapidly skew your result uh, to the point where you get the wrong answer. There are defensive techniques that are in play. The uh, the uh, memo from OMB uh, has some reference to this. There is some information available in the DOD community that they're dealing with this, and I think that that's already been shared, right, uh, appropriately about how to deal with different types of data streams and how you defend against red AI from messing with you. Some of those some of those include inserting what we call boundary controls, right? There's no way that this answer is valid and that answer answer is out of bounds, and therefore we have a real problem. And you shut down. Um, one of the other solutions that we use in some of the c- customers that I'm supporting is we use what we call the NASA shuttle method, right? Where quite literally you analyze a piece of data three times by three different state systems and each system drops out a specific piece of data that might be weird. And if one of those computing systems says, I have a different answer than everybody else, everybody pauses. 
You don't know that the shuttle never crashes, folks, but you wouldn't believe that you have a 30% error rate on the data on the shuttle when it lands. It's because one computer always has got a different issue and the other two agree. It's a voting thing, right? And so there's, there's some of that going on now in some of the AI research where um, we are using AI models uh, in the community right now to accomplish certain goals and we need to have that fidelity. And we, and we have to then tag what is read and then discard it or quarantine it and figure out how it got there. So those are just some of those defensive techniques. But when we talk about the ethics of AI, there's what AI might do because we don't want it to do. Yeah. And there's ethics, there's what AI will do because the adversarial is aiming something at us. Yeah. So I'll be brief. So, so this is an area that's super important. It's an area of ongoing work, ongoing research. From a, an AI model perspective, we do a significant amount of red teaming, uh, threat testing against the model to um, prevent jailbreaking attacks. Uh, when it comes to generative, uh, generative AI generated uh, content, uh, specifically images and videos, we enable watermarking of that content to attest that this is AI generated. And then from a customer perspective, in addition to everything that we do, we provide controls that enable customers to calibrate and do content filtering so that they can adjust. Because there may be some situations where a customer may want uh, something that we think is inappropriate coming from the model as part of maybe investigation, testing, et cetera. And so we enable lo different levels of calibration on top of that. Thanks. Yeah, and um, so we just did a big study actually this summer uh, in uh, adversarial AI, and uh, we started out by scoping it, right, and defining it. And a lot of people want to say adversarial AI is adversarial machine learning, which is AI on AI. Um, uh, and we took a broader scope, and we included things like uh, nefarious use of AI uh, on people, right? So, um, and what uh, we went through a number of use cases in, uh, you know, biometrics, C2ISR, all the missions, computer vision, uh, audio recognition, uh, NLP. Uh, and really what we learned from that uh, at the end of the day, at a very high level conceptual, uh, was that model evasion was of high concern early to us, uh, as was generative AI. And those two things together were especially powerful, people using generative AI to come up with ways to evade um, model-based processes. Um, so, so one of our uh, concerns that we're working uh, initially right now is really morphing uh, and the whole idea of uh, morphing GANs uh, in passports, uh, you know, at the border, uh, and, which is basically where you have uh, a picture that can match. Uh, well, you have two different photos and you blend them together in such a way that the photo can match either person. Uh, so that's a very important use case for us that we're um, uh, working on with the DOE labs right now. Perfect. Thanks. Yeah. One more question, guys, and we leave. John, final word. What do you need most from industry? Uh, and again, this is a, a theme that, that uh, we've heard before. Uh, the willingness to collaborate with other vendors. Okay. Uh, I think, you know, what we realize in this space is that um, as, as great as individual companies have, have capacities, uh, I, I don't think anybody has all of the puzzle uh, together. So one thing we're always looking to do, we have a responsibility to, to build a, for, for the resources we're going to put towards something, to build toward the best value. Um, and what that means a lot of times is working, working with different vendors in a modular approach that we can get the, the best in breed or best in class. 
uh, part of that solution. So we're always looking for vendors that are willing to work with other vendors uh, and to collaborate with them. So that certainly, certainly is a, is a plus. Thank you for tuning in. You can follow HSDF the podcast on any major podcast platform. Visit hsdf.org to learn more about the Homeland Security and Defense Forum. Thank you.